sometimes I hear we're like, oh, you know, guys who've been trained, they don't get afraid. They don't have the adrenaline dump. But yes, that's your body's sign that, you know, you need to be on your A game. So all of us have it. Welcome to the live drop. I'm speaking with Jason Hansen. He's an author, entrepreneur, ex-CIA case officer. His books, Spy Secrets That Can Save Your Life and Survive Like a Spy, are bestsellers and considered essential for those interested in spycraft with real stories from the field to back them up. Find him at spyandescape.com and survivelikeaspy.com. You might recognize him from Shark Tank, where he gained investors for his enterprise, which includes online training, on-site at his 320-acre spy ranch, his books, his gear, and security, and corporate consulting services at gpiagents.com. We listed into a discussion of libertarianism, self-reliance, the difference between country and government. Jason explains some of the social engineering he teaches and doxing, a term I haven't heard before. He reveals what motivated him as a case officer and now as a sought-after voice in the intelligence community. Begin transmission now. Yeah, uh, Jason, welcome to the live drop. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you. I was looking up your different, uh, your different companies and the services and the training and uh, your experience. I'm, I'm just really excited that you actually do have time to, to do a, have a conversation with me right now. Just uh, what would you be doing right now if you weren't talking to me, just out of curiosity? Well, today's an office day, so it's not an exciting day. Today's working on proposals, um, you know, working with the clients who need stuff, making phone calls, that kind of thing. So it's, it's an admin type day. Um, but, you know, yesterday I was at the shooting range. I was testing out a new gun. I was doing some training. So I've either got admin days, which are, you know, we all got to do admin stuff. Or we got the, you know, fun days when I'm out training and helping people and crashing cars or shooting guns. I think you should have, are you going to offer an um, administration like a spy? It's, 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 it's <laughs> How to bore people to death like a spy? <laughs> How to do admin like a spy. Yeah. Kind of jump right in a little bit. Maybe you could talk something about uh, each one of your particular divisions of, of your company and of your services. I mean, I know you have you have some online uh, videos and some training, tradecraft, mm-hmm. everything from dead drops to social engineering. And I also have you have a spy ranch, which I'm kind of interested in, and a consulting service as well. So could you just maybe give me a brief overview of those? Sure. So yeah, it is a little bit of everything. So obviously not everybody can afford to come out and train. Um, so we have a lot of online programs. We have books, we have videos, we have reports. Uh, so we have a, an online division. And then, as you mentioned, we have 320 acres out in Utah. So that's where we do the live training. That's where we're teaching the evasive driving or the escape and evasion or the pistol or the rifle classes. Um, and then we also have an executive protection company where we do a lot of bodyguard work. So celebrities hire us to, you know, follow them around. If they're going overseas, they want to stay safe. Um, so we have that whole thing. And then I do a lot of consulting. So corporations will just hire me to consult and say, hey, you know, fix this security issue we have, or can you train our security guys so that they know what they should be doing? So it's a, it's a little bit of everything, dancing in the civilian world or the average Joe world, but also in the corporate world. And how many in your company, in your, in your organization? You know, we run virtual. Or, so what I mean is, is, you know, I've got a certain team of about 10 guys, but most of everybody's contractors. Right. So if we get a huge job, I pull in all the contractors. And fortunately, being that I'm ex-CIA, most of my buddies are also ex-CIA. Um, so they're all doing something, but I pull them in um, when we need them. So I run my company pretty lean and mean. Yeah. How do you, I've, I've noticed one thing among 
people in the um, intelligence community is if you say, you know, someone, you say, hey, I, you were in, you know, so-and-so in Afghanistan and something such and such here at this exact location at the same time. Do you know so-and-so because he was there too? No, never heard of him. I don't know. Yeah. But there's a funny, there's a funny little uh, system of bona fides, I guess, I guess the word is. Yeah. 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 That's, yeah. I mean, that, that's the beauty is I get reached out to all the time. People call me and they're like, Hey, the CIA. And you know, I want to, you know, do you have any jobs for me? They're always trying to uh, get gigs and stuff. And right. so, you know, it's funny when I get the con men calling me because buddy, I can tell within 30 seconds if you've ever actually worked for the agency or not. And so I do get those, those goofy calls and I can, I can get rid of the, the con men very quickly. I went to West Point and I had somebody that I knew he's older. He claimed he was a graduate and, uh, and I think I'd met him a couple of times. He was, we were talking about working on this film together that he was producing. And there was just one moment I said something that I did wrong at West Point. And he said, oh, I bet you would have spent some time on the yard for that. And it's, we call it the area, not the yard. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was kind of like what color is the boathouse in Hereford? You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. I, I mean, exactly. Clearly, I never went to West Point. So me trying to pretend like I went to West Point, you'd be able to flush me out in a heartbeat. Yeah, that's um, a long thing. What are some things that you could flush somebody out with? I mean, if you can say. I mean, there's there's a bunch of there's a bunch of sites, training sites. You know, obviously top right. secret sites, and they all have different code names, and mm. many of the code names are very short. So when we're talking, we're like, oh yeah, hey, you know, I was stationed at X Y Z um, during this time or what, and so I'll know when they say that, or they'll mention something specific, as you said, like, hey, I was stationed at X Y Z. Did you ever know so and so? And I'll be like, actually, yeah, he was, you know, the team leader or whatever. And sure. so that's the, that's the kind of quick stuff. And I mean, again, it only takes 30 to 60 seconds before I know if the guy's real or fake. You can suss it out pretty quickly. But do you know, like when someone is not being honest with you or they're not being, or they're being deceitful or they're, I mean, do you, do you get like, how, how do you, I mean, there's ways of knowing it by verifying it, but is there like yeah. a, what other ways? Is there any other reactions? I mean, I, yeah. So one of the things I do is I teach lie detection. Right. Um, so I'll put on courses for companies of people and it's easy. I mean, one of the, w- without going to in, into a, you know, a day long training, one of the things I tell them is just ask them a straight out question and honest people will quite uh, reply quickly. They don't hesitate. They don't stutter. Mm-hmm. So if somebody says, yeah, Hey, you know, Hey, I work for the CIA. I'll point Blake, ask them a quick question. So I'll say like, Hey, when you were in headquarters at blah, blah, blah. Um, what did you think of X? And all of us have to go through certain initiations, all that kind of stuff. So if the guy freezes and like, uh, 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 well, clearly he didn't work for the agency. Or, you know, if he says, hey, I was stationed at whatever, and I happen to be at that place, he'll be like, oh, yeah, it wasn't the, again, I'll just name something and see if he's really telling the truth or not. Like, hey, wasn't the food the best in the world when there was no food or there was crappy food, you know, and to try and catch him off balance. So stuff like that. Yeah, one of your books, you mentioned clusters of behavior. You're referring to clusters of behaviors. I think there's an FBI analyst. I forget her name, but she she had written something about it where you can't necessarily tell from one thing, but if there's a variety of different behaviors then, that you look and at. That's 100% right. I mean, when I teach my courses, I'll give people 10 main things. And I say to them, listen, somebody being deceitful is not going to check off every single one of these 10 things. Mm-hmm. But if they do this and this and this, you know, if they're doing a few out of the 10 that's your clue. They're probably lying. That's your clue to push them a little harder. And I like to call people out when I'm doing my training. I'll say, listen, you just did this, this, and this. So I know you're lying. And then a lot of times they'll, you know, they'll come clean. 
That's an interesting conversation. I think there's a F- former FBI agent. He's an author as well, Joe Navarro. I think he talked about it last year, how you can't really tell if someone is lying. Um, Nothing is 100% sure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you have a phenomenal amount of, of you know, experience and, and training. But as, as I've noticed, as, as I've taught anything, that experience really only goes so far, right? But what have you learned about um, craft theory and application um, since you started training others that you didn't realize as a, as an active operative? Well, I mean, I, I think the important thing is obviously never stop learning, meaning, you know, never stop surrounding yourself by people who are a heck of a lot smarter than you, who are more experienced than you. So I'm constantly doing that. I mean, I'll meet guys who are ex-agency who got introduced to me to a friend to a friend to a friend kind of thing. And they had a, dirt, a certain uh, experience that I didn't have at the agency. So, you know, clearly I can learn from them. Um, but when teaching people, it's different, obviously, in the government world versus the civilian world. So in the government world, you have to do what I say. I can, you know, you don't have to make the class entertaining and fun because some guy's stuck in that room for two days or five days, no matter what. So in the civilian world, you have to realize these people are paying with their hard-earned cash. You know, they don't have to be there. Nobody's forcing them to be there. So I think that's the important thing is you can't have a boot camp mentality. You can't yell at them. Um, you know, you can't pretend they're soldiers who are going out there and kick and scream at them and yada, yada, yada. You've got to remember to make it fun and exciting or else you'll never get repeat customers. So it's a little more of a performance when you're teaching civilians. It has to be a little more entertaining, what you're saying? Yeah, 100%. I mean, you're, you're giving the same quality material. But if you walk in and you're boring and dry and, you know, you don't care about making sure they're comfortable, you don't care about providing good food or whatever you need to do then again, they're not going to come back, even though it's the same materials. You have to realize you cannot bore these people to death. And not everybody could do it. I've got some wonderful people who work for me who I would never in a million years put in front of an audience because they're used to government training. And even though they're brilliant, they don't know how to make it exciting and fun. I have a lot. I have a lot of questions. I really enjoyed your books. I just want to, I just want to say, I thank you. The survive like a spy. I thought it was really cool. I, uh, I, I really like that you involved other um, anecdotes and other, other stories from, from other, from other agents out in the field. Uh, you know, I, I think sometimes, sometimes with those books that I've read, it's people are kind of exaggerating their own experience, but I, I think it was cool that you went out and you found, you saw other people that had, cause I was thinking, wait a minute, he seems too old to be, you know, getting floppy. He seems too young. <laughs> Jason seems too young to be getting floppy discs out of a hotel room, <laughs> but uh uh, I thought that it was a really good selection of um, stories and it kept me really engaged. Good. I mean, well, as I said, everybody's got different experiences. Mm-hmm. So, you know, some guys did some stuff that I never did and vice versa. So yeah, I've got, uh, you know, wonderful buddies who did some amazing things, you know, way back in the day of floppy disks. And so I said, Hey, you know, obviously we're going to protect your identity, but can we share this with people? Can I use your story? And they were very gracious and said, yes. Well, I first started reading and I thought, I don't know if it's that important if it's on a floppy disk. I don't know. <laughs> or, or I thought to myself, well, that's kind of brilliant, actually, to put something on a floppy disk, because you'd never think that it was really important. Um, are there any places where former intelligence professionals get together and kind of sh- share this information from each other? Or are there places where you, I know you can't get into, you know what I was thinking about doing? I'm sorry, I'm rambling a bit. But um, that's okay. if we have, uh, once in a while, there's that awkward moment where I'll ask something in a, converse, in a conversation from people in the intelligence community where it's something they can't say, or it's a little classified. So do you want to come up with a code word 
for that. <laughs> you said. Well, remember how I said you ask somebody something uncomfortable and they start stuttering? Yeah, yeah. You'll see me start kind of going blank and, and trying to think of a workaround. So. Yeah, yeah, because you <laughs> so don't want to say, listen, I'm sorry, I can't tell you that. You don't want to, that's kind of a conversation downer. Maybe we can come up with a code word. We'll say, I don't know, breakfast or something <laughs> or something related to that. Bre- breakfast it is. So I guess my question was, are there places where this type of institutional knowledge is, is, is shared? I, I know I've met a friend who's a diplomat and he said he went through like 11 hours of questioning where they just sort of downloaded everything that he knew or tried. Is there a similar program at um, CIA? So here's what I can tell you. See, this is, this is me uh, avoiding breakfast. <laughs> is after you leave the agency, there's still a great place to get information. It's called AFIO, A-F-I-O. Mm-hmm. And it's the Association of Former Intelligence Officers. So if you're a former intelligence officer, you can join AFIO. And they send you weekly briefings. You get a huge manual once or twice a year or something. So for guys who are no longer in the biz like me, um, that is a great way to still stay on top of things, to get information. Now, what they're doing when you're there, I just don't know. I will, I will avoid that question. It's a big box and you can't look inside yeah yeah i could i could hear the eggs frying right now um <laughs> is there any pushback from the intelligence community in, in teaching tradecraft or, or things like this no because i'm not sharing anything classified every time i write a book or i have new material i have to send it to the agency so they have what's called a publication review board they go through it and it's funny as you you ask that right now i'm in the middle of doing my third book and it's come out in May. And just yesterday, I got back the pages and only about four pages are redacted. And I've been working with agency long enough. I pretty much know now what I can say and what I can't say. Uh, so out of about a 250 page book, four pages got redacted, which means I got to go through there and clean it up and change it and send it back to them, which I'm going to do as soon as we get off this, uh, this call. Um, but as long as you're playing ball and you're not being a knucklehead sharing classified information they're actually happy because that makes them be in a good light more people are like hey i want to join the cia or i want to join the dia or nsa so Mm -hmm. it's good publicity for them so it adds some transparency to it as well what is it what is it called again you said a review board or something it's called the publications review board or prb for short oh prb is it um is it just CIA or is it, is it across? Well, the, I mean, I'm pretty sure every agency has one. I know every agency has one, but I don't know what right. they call their own. Um, but the CRBs is called the Publications Review Board. And I send them the manuscripts. They take, you know, 30, 60 days to review it. They come back and say, hey, there's classified material in here. You can't use this. Here's all the classified material. You know, send us back the book again with all this out and then we'll approve it. You know, could you describe generally some of the, some of the guests or some, some of the, some of your students or some of the people that are, are, are interested in your, your programs. Like what is a typical guest that comes out to the spy ranch? You know, it's a wide range, meaning we, I think the youngest we've had there is 16 years of age and the oldest is 83 years old. Um, it's every background you can imagine from doctors, lawyers, celebrities to the guy next door, or the woman next door who just, you know, doesn't want to experience a home invasion. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll tell you the thing they have in common is they're conservative. So my people are conservative Americans, um, very patriotic, uh, you know, love this country, love the freedom we have. Um, but other than being conservative patriotic, it really is. I mean, I've had every background you can imagine. The, the craziest one that comes to mind is a 
And this is Barnum and Bailey shut down a circus, didn't they? I think they, I read that a while back, but anyway, <laughs> this was years ago um, when Barnum, Barnum and Bailey was doing the circus and I had a circus performer come and take my training because they traveled all over the world and they wanted to be safe when they were out and about in a foreign city. So it really is a motley crew of people. Wow. So which one was it? Was it the, the guy who hits the hammer to make the thing <laughs> ring? Or the... I don't know. I'm trying to think now. This was so many years ago. It was the lion tamer. The yeah, lion tamer. I don't even remember who it was. It's like, I just don't feel safe. It's like, stop training lions. You'll feel a lot better about yourself. I, I, I would suggest that more, even more than conservative, that your people that are drawn to it are a little more libertarian. I mean, you talk about self-reliance and, Correct. Uh, and the importance of that, which I think is something that's really admirable with all the... Um, I, I guess you call it a prepper movement in, in some ways. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll jump in here. I think self-reliance, because yeah, that's what I teach. I mean, I do teach you how to be self-reliant and, you know, from food storage, water storage, but obviously self-defense have to take care of yourself. What I always tell people is, listen, if you're not self-reliant, you don't do good to anybody else. Meaning I've got, I happen to have a year supply of food in my home. If the stuff hits the fan, and I've got my year supply of food and it enables me to share with my neighbors and it enables me to help other people out. If you're some deadbeat who relies on the government, then you're not going to be able to help anybody else, especially you can't even help yourself. So the more prepared you are, you're not going to be a drain on resources and you're, you're able to do a lot more good in this world and help more people. I wonder if people, if a lot of people actually make that jump. I mean, we're just jumping into some ideological stuff pretty quickly, but um, like for me personally, I, I like to have a good supply of food. I've got a tactical pen here somewhere. Excellent. My favorite self-defense tool. In case I have to defend myself, <laughs> you know, so I've, you know, I've got the goodies. I've got some of the goodies, but my thought was, I don't want to be, I don't want to be a burden. I don't want to be lost in case there's an earthquake or, you know, a fire. I mean, I live in California. Anything can happen here. So I'm just questioning, do you really, do you think that it's, are people interested in helping other people after they've taken care of themselves? I think so. I think most human beings are good and they care about others and they're smart enough to realize the government is not your friend. Um, Ronald Reagan famously said the scariest words you'll ever hear are I'm with the government. I'm here to help. So (laughs) the government doesn't care about you. They don't care about making sure you have food and water, you know? So that's what I think I, you know, people need to understand. So when bad things happen, you've got neighbors you probably like, you've got relatives are probably going to come out of the woodwork. So not that you're going to have enough to give it away to everybody, but take care of yourself so you can at least help a few others. I want to talk about, you know, your, it's an attitude toward, toward government. I think that's, that's kind of interesting that you're but you're also, you know, work for the government. You also work for CIA. You were actively suborning people because you believed in the government, or I, I'm, I'm assuming you kind of believed in uh, America as a force of good in the world, or were you just sort of feeling I, I need to protect my people? That's a good question. So I believe in the country and mm-hmm. I believe in the, the government for certain things. Mm-hmm. So I, I can't remember who said it. I, I read something once and s- someone was very articulate about it, but they said the country and the government are two different things. So the United States is a country is why I work for the CIA to protect our freedoms, to protect, you know, the amazing country we have. The government itself is a necessary evil. So certain things about the government are good, meaning we need the military absolutely to protect our borders. We need the CIA. We need the FBI. You know, we need law enforcement. You know, we just had the government shut down. And being someone who's worked for the government, you could fire, you know, 25% of government employees right now and never missed a beat. 
And that's probably being conservative. There are certain elements of the government, again, the military, law enforcement that we need, but a vast majority of the government are worthless deadbeats. And I, I genuinely mean that, know that, because I had many friends who they didn't work for the agency or, or you know, any of the NSAs, but they worked for yeah. the Social Security Administration, or they worked for more administrative type governments. And they just tell me story after story about these people who, you know, maybe worked one hour a day while they were busting their butts off. So if I ruled the world, I'd fire 25% of government employees, which is why I'll never be president. So I don't know. Don't count yourself out. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Look what we got now. You're right about that. Don't count yourself out. I think you got a shot. Um, I guess I'm talking about the actual suborning of someone, which was a word I hadn't really heard that much. And to get someone to become their country's Benedict Arnold in a way. And I'm just wondering how, how you, it's a heavy question to go in. To go into right now, but how do you how do you justify that? So, do you mean how how the CIA goes overseas and recruits people to spy on behalf of the agency? Are you talking about how a CIA employee would betray their country and go work for the Chinese or the Russians? Oh, that's a whole other subject. There, no, I'm talking about how you, as a case officer, how how you justify essentially ruining potentially ruining someone's life for the benefit of our country. You know, they're not necessarily a combatant. Right. So you don't have that, um, you know, that immediate threat that's right there. I'm just wondering, how, how do you structure that? I'm only saying it because I think I'd make a terrible case officer. I, well, think I, I think I would just start feeling sorry for the person and think like, oh, God, I'm so nervous. I'm, I have enough anxiety myself, but now I got to worry about this other guy getting caught putting a, a chalk mark against a sign or something. Well, I mean, I think it's very, very, very important to realize the United States government doesn't force anybody to work for them. Right. So unlike other countries around the world where they'll kidnap your family or they'll basically put a uh, theoretical gun to your head and say, you're going to go do this. We allow people the freedom to choose. So just hypothetical, if you're going over to Germany and there's someone you specifically want to recruit and you say, hey, German Bob, we'd like you to work for the United States government. And German Bob flips you the bird and says, no, well, unfortunately, there's not much you can do. So we allow people their freedom. Plus, you tell them the truth. You mean, say, hey, this is what's going to happen. This is what you're going to do. And you got to realize a case officer wants to make sure that person knows the risk and are serious because if they're not and they screw up, you could get on that, get it, uh, that case officer killed too. Mm-hmm. So you're not being reckless with these people lying to them being like, Hey, it's going to be all, you know, fairies and rainbows. You let them know the seriousness. And a lot of these people remember they love the United States of America. They love the freedoms we have. They want to, have a part of this, which is why they do it. So uh, the government's pretty honest with them. Mm-hmm. That German Bob sounds like a dick. <laughs> I, I, a, like a, I was just thinking about, you mentioned home invasion. I'm just wondering about the risk versus reward. I mean, the risk being, um, the risk being putting the time in preparing for a home invasion compared to the, the likelihood that it will actually happen. And uh, I was just wondering what, the statistics were on that because it's sometimes what your videos and your books do is they walk the line really well. There's a really good balance of showing the value of these products and this training without exciting people into some sort of hysteria that someone is, is at their door. And I'm just wondering how you do that. Well, the FBI statistics are about every 15 seconds in the United States of America, there's a home invasion. So when you say it like that, it sounds like a lot, but there's obviously millions and millions of homes in this country. So the percentage is small, but it's still happening to someone. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So because of what I do for a living, I get numerous people who have experienced home invasions who come to me to make sure it never happens again. So what I always tell people is, listen, the chances are slim that you're ever going to experience a home invasion, but it's very easy to prepare for. Why not spend a small amount of time because the time investment is absolutely worth the reward. Um, because, you know, if the day comes that some burglars kicking in your front door at 3 a.m., you'll be glad you invested that small amount of time. So that's how I look at it is I, I pray it never happens. It's probably never going to happen. But if it does happen, I'll be ready for it. This is a quick jump, and I don't, I don't, this isn't going to get into a whole debate about gun control because I know how you feel about that. But I, wanted, <laughs> but I wanted to talk about children. You say, you know, you're protecting your family and they have, you know, they have code words they can say, they know where the safe room is, they know. Do they ever get scared when you're preparing for that sort of thing? No, because I'm always very practical with it, like I'm practical with it now. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I really just say, hey guys, this is probably never going to happen, but the boogeyman's out there, and if he chooses to, come through our door one day, let's make sure that nobody gets hurt. And so it's not like, you know, I think the, the, the myth is like every day I'm with my family, you know, 10 hours a day being like train, train, train. No, we mention it now and then, and that's how we're prepared. So it's not, it's not like I'm scaring them or fear mongering or anything like that. Yeah. I just remember I was a kid and for us, it was get on. I'm old enough to be, get underneath the desks, nuclear, (laughs) nuclear, nuclear scare and uh even to this day whenever i meet a russian i'm a little i get a little bit <laughs> nervous it takes a while to sort of relax a little bit but i'm just wondering like, what kids kids nowadays it must be like with school shootings and so forth i mean last week there i last week i was reading an article about a, a school i think in florida that had a drill it was an active shooter drill and they hadn't told everyone that it was a drill it was a mess i mean people were <laughs> they had to bring in uh you know, trauma, trauma counselors and so forth, because it just, it got a little bit nuts. I mean, what did they do wrong? I mean, you just said it. It's kind of a boneheaded decision not to announce that you're having a drill. I mean, there's a quick way to traumatize people and never, you know, get them to want to work with you again. So as you're saying that, I'm just thinking, if I pretended to stage a home invasion in my house, I would end up with a bullet in my chest for my wife. So you know, right. clearly you need to allow people or you need to tell people, hey, this is a drill. So not mm. a very smart move on their part. I played a, a bodyguard on TV for two years and I was reading, um, um, God, who's, who's, the, who's the famous bodyguard with the French name who's working for Jeff Bezos right now? Oh, uh, Gavin DeBecker. Gavin DeBecker. So I read some of Gavin DeBecker's books and he talks about the, the, the time, the seconds and that you have to react. And one of the main obstacles to that reaction time is actually believing that this could be happening to you. How do you, how do you teach that? And how do you, how do you teach that in your classes that, that quick realization? Oh, wow, this could be happening to me with, without well, scaring people, I guess. Right. I obviously teach them in the classes, but they have to go home and do it themselves because it's only through training and muscle memory. Right. So, I mean, for instance, every morning I dry fire with my hand. All that means is with Sam gun. I draw it out of my pistol. Um, I do 25 trigger pulls with my gun. It takes me about 10 minutes every morning. But in the instances I've had to draw my gun, I didn't hesitate. It didn't take me a long time to get it out of my holster because I've developed that muscle memory. So what I tell people is, again, you don't have to spend hours a day or even a week. I spend 10 minutes a day, but you've got to train. Somebody developing a home defense plan. Not that you're going to set your alarm for 3 a.m. every night, but maybe one night when you get up to pee, grab your flashlight and gun and see how quickly you can get to your door and you're prepared. 
So mm-hmm. it's small things like that. And that's, that's the really important stuff that people need to do. I remember exercises. We used to train in this place called Doughboy City in Berlin. And it was a, it was a urban environment. And um, I remember these training sessions, even though we're using miles with the little beepers, I would get so excited. My adrenaline would get running so high just during these exercises. And it wasn't really the real thing. I sort of felt, uh, I felt that I'd kind of experienced, I'd experienced it in a way. I was just wondering if you do any of that in your training, any sort of realism? Yeah. I mean, we do that. That's the best kind of training out there. So we do force on force training with airsoft pistols. Mm-hmm. So you obviously have to wear a safety mask, but you're having real pellet shot at you and not that they're going to kill you, but they sting a little bit. You know, I, I tell people it's the next best thing without using a real gun mm-hmm. because a lot of people, they just go to the shooting range. You know, they sit there, it's a static range. They fire a few rounds and go home. But until you've had someone shooting at you, even though again, it's an airsoft gun, it really changes things and you realize how you're going to act in real life. So I think that's in the book um, by Colonel Grossman called On Killing. It was like one of the, there's that, there's that moment where you realize, wow, someone from my own species is trying to cause me harm. And that is the thing that really throws people. I mean, it could be a natural, you can be traumatized by a variety of different things. It could be earthquakes and car accidents and all sorts of things. And, um, and, and that's intense. But yeah, that, that's sort of psychological confusion when you realize your own species is trying to harm you and trying to kill you. He said, that's, that's a trauma that people have to kind of get over. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I mean, that's one of the huge blessings slash benefits I had from the agency is that we train so much that I don't even have to think about it now. Right. You know, I know bad guy coming. Okay. Stop bad guy. Uh, you know, same thing with law enforcement, military you train so much, but yeah, the average person doesn't have that advantage and they haven't been through certain things. So that's why they've got to simulate it as much as you can because freezing is what kills you. Mm-hmm. I mean, we hear those horrible active shooter situations where a guy comes with a gun and even though there's 30 people in the room, everybody just stands there frozen because obviously they're in shock. They haven't thought about it before. They haven't planned what they're going to do. And he ends up killing a significant number of people when obviously 30 people could overtake one guy with a gun. I'm just wondering about you personally. Do you remember the first time and not necessarily like in a hostile environment and, you know, government service, but do you remember the first time where you actually felt threatened physically? That is a great question. Now I'm going, I'm, I'm going way back to my childhood and, you know, I got in fights in elementary school, like everybody did, but I'm trying to think yeah. really, I mean, there were some times of the agency and, you know, you get the adrenaline dump, your heart starts right. pounding. Yeah. And I think that's one of those things, which, you know, uh, I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to say here is that happens to everybody. Meaning sometimes I hear we're like, Oh, you know, guys who've been trained, they don't get afraid. They don't have the adrenaline dump, but yes, that's your body's sign that, you know, you need to be on your A game. So all of us have it. Um, you know, maybe what is it? Month ago, my alarm went off and my, uh, I have window alarms. So if anybody tries to break the window, it's a glass break sensor Mm -hmm. and it was a really bad storm. And so if anything hits the window and, you know, it's got to hit a decent amount, it's going to go off. Well, in my two-year-old daughter's room, this glass break sensor alarm went off. I grabbed my flashlight. I grabbed my gun out of the safe and I'm moving quickly to her room. Now it turned out and I I checked my cameras afterwards, but it turned out it was just, you know, a big piece of hail or whatever hitting. No threat, nothing, nothing serious. But as soon as that alarm went off and I woke up, you better believe my heart starts pounding. I have the adrenaline dump because clearly I don't know what's happening. So no matter who you are, you're going to be afraid. But if you train enough, you just work through it anyway. Meaning I was, I was to a room in a matter of seconds. 
they say like one out of 36 houses will be broken into, which that's kind of a, that was, I think from FBI statistics or something, but you said something about, you wrote an article about doxing on your blog and I'd never heard that term before, but it sort of seemed like it's sort of like an old Russian Cheka thing, right? This disinformatia. And uh, I think the German Stasi had a version of it called Zerstörung, where they just tried to, they would break into the, you know, assistant ambassador's house and move his furniture. And then <laughs> and, and it just, they would just do little things or like one, tell one friend of a friend a story about him that wasn't true. And it got back to him. It's like, what, what the, just little tiny, like death by paper cuts that they would do. Right. And um, I was just wondering if you, if you include any of that in your training or a defense for that, because it sounds an awful lot like what kids are doing in school with bullying. Yeah, I mean, doxing, we talk about it because we do cybersecurity courses and other things, but doxing is basically putting way too much information online so that anybody can find where you live. And, you know, it's almost like swatting in a way. So they can report false material, they can spread disinformation. And, you know, what I tell people is I have social media. I mean, I really don't use it myself. My, my employees do. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you how to get on my Twitter account right now if my life depended on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but most importantly is all my vital information is private. Meaning if you tried to find out where I live right now, you couldn't. I don't own my house in my own name. I have it in an LLC wrapped in a trust. And I've got registered agents. That way, if you actually found out what the LLC, it was to go to someplace that's not in my state to somebody that doesn't even have my name. So that's you know what I recommend with people. If you do something in the law enforcement community, obviously you got to protect your address. And so that's, I mean, that's what I'm a firm believer of. Even if you check my license, my license has another address, my car registered to another address. Um, I don't have any mail come to my home. I had never had a pizza delivered to my home. So there is nothing that ties me back to the place where I live. You've never sent a text message. You've never had a pizza delivered to your home. Um, I, was, I was also reading through something you said about, it was kind of like building, building rapport, like coming up with things that we have in common. And um, we do have, we do have one thing in common, although I have, I send text messages all the time and I order pizza all the time. It's uh Thorlo socks. I had, I have to admit, <laughs> you recommended yep. they're fantastic. They're part wool too, right? I think yep. that's important. For me. away. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm always, I, I am an absolute gear junkie. <laughs> and of course to the agency, uncle Sam provides you with a lot of gear and he's got a bigger budget than I do on my own now. Yeah. But yeah, I'm always testing out new gear, knives and flashlights and, because of what I do, I get a lot of it sent to me for free. You know, companies are always like, hey, will you endorse this? Or what do you think of this? Yeah. Um, so if you saw a part of my home, it is just like piles and piles of cool gear that I need to do something with. Yeah, I'm kind of a gearhead myself. Um, I mean, I'm not in the service at all, but I think they, are, they have these great tactical belts now, right? I mean, you know, the gear belts, they're just sort of, that people wear, they wear them for the uniforms, they wear them for everything. I, and uh, I mean, I got one from somewhere. It's just like a simple... It's all plastic. There's no metal in it. It's all plastic and nylon. And uh, I went, to, I was in uh, Nairobi this summer and I went to a soccer game and there was a guy standing near a tree with kind of an ill-fitting suit um, who looked like he was watching the crowd. And I stopped because I was waiting a friend, waiting for a friend not far away from him. And uh, he just said out of the side of his mouth, he goes, I know that belt. <laughs> <laughs> there's a man who pays attention right that was it he goes i know that belt it's a good belt (laughs) (laughs) anything that you wanted anything you wanted to throw in anything you wanted to add like what are you working on now or what's what are you what are you working on in the future so what i'm working on now is as i said i got a new book coming out in may um harper collins is publishing that so 
I've got to go figure out all those redacted pages. And then we're just, I mean, we're growing. We're doing a lot of security work. Fortunately and unfortunately, the world is not going to get any safer. So we're busy just figuring out who we want to work with, who we want to train with, and just growing the company. So it's a, it's a fun time. It's an exciting time. And could you tell me a little bit about the Spy Ranch, like how long it lasts? And um... So it's called the Ultimate Spy Week. And the website is spyweek.com. And it's five days of training, Monday through Friday. It's at our 320-acre Spy Ranch. Um, we do escape and evasion training, meaning how to escape duct tape, how to pick locks, you know, how to escape rope. Um, we do evasive driving training. Um, you learn everything from how to do the 180 reverse turn to literally how to ram a vehicle. So you'll be in a car with a safety helmet and you're, cla- uh, you're crashing through a blockade. Um, we do weapons training. So you're going to train on rifles. You're going to train on pistols. And then we do knife training. So here's how to train with a knife. Here's how to train empty hands. That way you're learning some knife combat and hand combat. So it's a heck of a lot of fun. It's, it's a good week that is jam-packed with spy skills that anyone can use. That sounds great. Yeah, I've been looking for something like that. I mean, so once so you find these, str- they seem a little sketchy sometimes. I mean, there are, there are, <laughs> there are, there are some strange ones out there. Where you, you go to this desert in Arizona and they'll teach you how to be a spy. It's like, ah. Well, man, what I always do is because I'm, I'm a training junkie too. And just, yeah. you're a junkie, you know, obviously I always want to keep training. So I'm like, who's behind it? Is it somebody, you know, I know or know of who's legitimate CIA, FBI, military, special forces? Mm-hmm. Or is it like, you know, some guy living in his mom's basement who's, you know, read some books on the internet? There's one I'm interested in. It was, I think he's a, he's written a couple of books. He's Rhodesian. He was on the mission to take over the seashells, I think, back in the 60s. Do you remember um, th- those? Are you talking about one of the, uh, I'm drawing blank here, because one Rhodesian guy I know is dead. Uh, the other guy is, he was a combat tracking guy. Is that what you're talking about? I don't know, but he was a mercenary with, um, God, who was a famous English or Irish mercenary in like the Congo? And then he ended up trying to take over the Seychelles in the, in the 60s. Um, I know who you're talking about. I'm drawing total blank. Yeah, but there's someone that was involved with that that's actually running. A, I'm not. I don't know. Similar. I have no idea what it's like. But it's on an island or something in the Caribbean. <laughs> well, that's cool. <laughs> but I, I, I feel a little weird about going to an island, though. To, I, I just, <laughs> that you may never come back from. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. If I'm so. going to go to a spy camp, I'd rather go to a place that I can get in my car and drive away from. <laughs> right. But anyway, um, it sounds really cool, everything that you're doing. And, uh, yeah, I do want to throw, we have a couple of minutes left, but I want to throw one other thing that happened to me recently. And I just want to hear what you think. It was one of those situations where I wasn't quite sure what was happening. I was in, last year I did a job. And is it okay if I solicit some free consulting from you? Yeah, absolutely. Five minutes, cool. Um, I, was, I was doing a podcast interview and I'd also was working on a television show for Amazon in uh, Czechoslovakia. So I thought I'd never been to better to moscow I'll, let me go there so i fly to moscow i get a, a visa right you get a, I get, you have to get like a special visa they have to sort of invite you before you stay there you have to give them your adva- your address where you're going to be and then they have to the hotel sends you an invitation or some crazy thing like that so i went and uh interviewed someone for a pod for this podcast it was early on and i went and met some other actors and i went and spoke to their one of their acting schools uh, to one of their classes and uh about six days later i was left and i was at the airport i i hadn't really i'd been recognized by maybe 
two people once in a bookstore a guy said hey you were you were a human target i know you and uh <laughs> it's sort of my demographic you know like a guy with a leather jacket usually working <laughs> security <laughs> I, I can tell what show they know me from it probably wasn't a soap opera it's probably <laughs> the human target but i got to the airport and i was at a little coffee kiosk just you know stones throw away from my gate and a woman came up to me and she's kind of acting like she's in a hurry and she's confused and she has a cell phone. It's got jewels and she looks Asian or Chinese and she's well-dressed and she comes up to me. She says, Oh my God, I have to talk to you. And I've been an, you know, I've been an actor for a while. I've been on shows that have been popular where you get a lot of attention. I've been on shows where you, you don't get a lot of attention. I really haven't been on a show where I get a lot of attention in a while. She was probably, I don't know, thirties or something like this. And she had like little jewels on her phone and she had papers coming out of her bags, but she was so excited to meet me. And she said, Oh my God, you are, are you Mark Valley? I don't believe I'm running into you here at the airport in Moscow. And I said, yeah, yes, I, I am. And she said, Oh my God. And she starts listing off. She's nervous and I'm trying to order and I get my coffee. And I said, why don't you come over here and it's a stand-up table. So you can stand up and talk to me. I got nobody else to talk to right now. So she comes out. She knew my resume better than anyone I had ever met in my 25-year career. <laughs> <laughs> right? So she was a full-blown stalker then. It was like, I do, what's the difference between a stalker and like, yeah, it was a full-blown stalker. And I thought, this is crazy to come to Moscow and meet my biggest fan who's a Chinese fashion student you know, come. And, um, but we're talking and she sort of did some things that were strange. Like she left her passport kind of open on the table and she was going through her phone and she wanted, she was kind of take a picture of you and she took a picture, but she was, I didn't know it, but she left it on video. And, uh, she said, are you, what are you here for? And I said, Oh, I'm here just to talk to some people and interview some people. And I went and talked to an acting class and she said, Oh, are you doing any spy stuff here? Because you played a spy on TV. And I said, no, no, absolutely not. I'm just having coffee. And what are, what are you doing here? And, you know, I tried to change the conversation over. And please don't videotape me. This is kind of ridiculous. I, ultimately, my plane started to, you know, started to board and I had to leave. But I just thought that was a little weird. I mean, it's just a stalker, right? And who, who are you? Well, but- all right, yeah, yeah. So here's the... Am I just you paranoid know, from doing a podcast? If no, no, I'll, I'll give you both. I'll, I'll give you both versions. One, yeah. it's just a stalker, totally coincidence. Yeah. Even though in the agency, we really don't believe in coincidences. Right. Two, is that she was trying to recruit you. So you got to remember, many spies around the world, they don't go to America to recruit Americans. They try and hit them in foreign countries where they're on more safer soil. So let's theoretically say, you know, somebody wanted to recruit you. They're not going to come to the U.S., because it's more dangerous than get caught. But Russia, who is much more friendly to many people who hate us around the world, there's a great place to recruit Mark. I know where he's going to be. I know he's coming in. I can recruit him there, keep in touch with him, and see if he wants to spy for the Chinese government. So that's my conspiracy theory version. Because you mentioned doing, because I clicked on your link for like doing research, because I was really fascinated with your, you know, how you build a character, you build a legend, and you start putting these characters together, you're doing your research. But I think in her... If it was, if it's probably just a fan, it's, but it was probably, well, yeah, I mean, it, it was probably too much research if it was anything else. Does that make any sense? Yeah. I mean, if she was, I mean, I'll give you an instance. If we're, you know, we're not going into Iran, meaning the U S government is going to send somebody in there, but what they're going to do is go to, and I'm just making up, they're going to go to a place like Italy 
if it has a large Iranian population, they're going to try and recruit one of them local traveler. who is a traveler back and forth to Iran kind of thing. And it's a safe place to recruit an Iranian there versus, again, in Iran. So this woman was either A, trying to recruit you, but probably a fan because... Right. That makes sense. Oh, good. <laughs> on one hand, I'm relieved, but on the other hand, I'm like, oh, gosh, I wish I would have been... Rec- why didn't they want a better story to tell why didn't they want to recruit me (laughs) i gotta you gotta get more access to government secrets i got i got a tactical pen you you never know who they're going to want to get to you never know who they're going to recruit you never know yeah you've gotten into his cross it's funny because you don't like you don't like skiing i don't like it i don't like it either (laughs) i look i live 30 minutes from a big ski resort it's just right up the mountain from my house and so we go there because the kids like to play in the snow. They like to go tubing. But I've never skied there because I hate skiing and stuff. Why don't you hate skiing? I think it has something to do with self-reliance. Just me. I, that big, you're, you're dependent on that big machine. I just, I just don't enjoy it. For me, it's not an enjoyable experience. Right. You know, I'm all for sports and activities and stuff. But, you know, I love to go shooting, go to the range. But, yeah, skiing, it, it doesn't do it for me. You know what would look cool about to me is biathlon. Yes, yeah. That's one where they're cross-country skiing and they take the 22 out and shit. That that would be cool. I always think of James Bond, whatever James Bond movie that was, you know, where he's skiing and shooting. Yeah, where he's skiing and shooting. He's not downhill skiing, James Bond. No, right, right, yeah. <laughs> you'd, have, you'd have an ulterior an ulterior motive or something else going on. So anyway, Jason, um, thanks for your time. I'd love to talk to you again at some point if you're, if you're willing. Absolutely. Thanks for being on the live drop. Thank you. Thank you.